Before we begin this episode, I'd like to take a moment of your time. Last week, my wife Catherine donated a kidney to a stranger in need. It was one of the kindest, most honorable, most inspiring acts of decency I've ever witnessed, and nearly 100,000 Americans are waiting to receive kidneys in order to go on living healthy, productive lives. It's a very low-risk procedure for the donor, and you can, you will, save a life. So in honor of Catherine, as well as Eli Valdez, the recipient, please visit kidneyfund.org for more information. Thank you, and on with the show. Aliens and flying saucers. This is all in a Hey, welcome to the 103rd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to erotica to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Darren Sands, the fantastic BuzzFeed news writer who's covering the 2020 presidential race and the Democratic Party as a whole. And Darren is one of the best political scribes out there. So I thought it'd be cool to pick the brain of someone who's about to be very busy with Trump, with Biden, with Warren, hanging with Mayor Pete, getting some minutes with Cory Booker. It's a legit primer on modern day electoral coverage. And it's all right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Darren, if you're about the, I would say, fourth, maybe fifth political journalist I've had on the show. And I think I think there are two things. Number one is that people are so people either love politics or just absolutely hate it. Don't want to hear a damn thing about it. And that's what I always get. People either say, oh, this is the best or I don't want to hear anything about it. And I was kind of wondering in your life, forget what you're covering, like in your life. Do people in the same way when I was covering baseball at Sports Illustrated, all I'd get is, so how are the Mets going to be? Do people just want to know who's going to be the next president? Is that the number <laughs> yeah. one question? Um, yeah. Or they want to know, like, if the person that they like is going to has a chance. And so I, that's the other thing that happens, too, is is like people want. Well, it's like I like Elizabeth Warren, but. Like, I don't know if she can win the nomination. Like, can she win the nomination? Or like, what's the most likely scenario? Like, or how does the map work in their favor? Um, so that's like the, that's the other big thing that, that happens too. And do you, what's your standard? Do you have a standard reply? My standard reply now is that it's, it's like a long time from when, you know, like candidates and people need to be thinking about whether they can win the nomination or not. And like, you have to like, my response is also usually includes like some version of like that candidate, you know, ex candidate has to just do their job. You know what I mean? And, and I think that I think that's right. Um, anyone who is like any of the top six or seven people in the race right now and in, in, in terms of like the 2020 race, any of them can win the nomination. You never know what's going to happen between now and Iowa, you know, come January, February of next year. Um, there's so many different variables. It's like in sports where we're like, like the Red Sox right now are like at 500 right now. Like we could be having a, com- you know, a completely different conversation come August. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just, that's just how this thing works. Um, so yeah, I don't think that people, I think people get a little bit neurotic about this kind of thing because of, you know, who's in the White House right now. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that it's all part of a, a, a broader conversation about process. 
you have a very interesting job um, because it breaks from the norm of what I think a lot of people my age in their forties, you know, and, and older uh, grew up thinking of a political reporter, meaning, uh, you know, I would grow up with guys who were covering it every day for the New York times and you'd see their byline every day and it'd be a different story. And it was a very sort of straight ahead story. And you, you kind of understood where they were coming from specifically and what their job was. And you, you know, I'm looking at your, just your, your, the history of your stories. And you wrote about uh, Pete Buttigieg six days ago. You wrote about him 13 days ago. You wrote about Cory Booker's plan for voting rights 10 days before that. Sometimes you have a story here, then you have a story 10 days later. What is your job? That's a broad question. Um, my job is to obviously is to, you know, on a base level, it's to cover the election and the Democratic Party and like the political left. I think how I'm seeing 2020 right now and how it is kind of informing my coverage process. And, and I think about sort of how we, I were thinking about the election right now. I tend to think of it as a, a set of sort of emotional narratives. And I think that how much money someone raised or like how someone fared in some poll is not necessarily what is most interesting to people. And so my job is to try and figure that out. And I think that the confluence of like narratives that are about how someone is trying to win the Democratic nomination to try and take out Donald Trump is like the most interesting part of this story. And so for someone like Pete Buttigieg, that's like about being a white man who is gay from the Midwest and having been a mayor who had to make a ton of difficult decisions in his mayoral career as a very young person. Um, and then, you know, went and tried to go when, you know, the be chair of the DNC. Um, and now to be one of the front runners for president. To me, that is like a set of emotional narratives and stories that are about identity and about how you sort of break through. Um, and, and telling your story. So, I, I mean, I think that like my job is to like try and figure that out, um, pretty much, you know, day by day. Like, and I, I have to stress that like, I don't care a whole lot about, you know, who raised, who raised what or who is trying to deny money from a super PAC or like anything like that. Like, I think like, um, the, the story right now is about, you know, how these different, folks are trying to like break through in, in the context of, you know, what's a pretty crazy time um, in, in our politics. Are you allowed to be down on Trump? Am I? Um, I am. I'm allowed to be, I think. I mean, like, you know what I mean? From a journalistic standpoint, <laughs> is that allowed to the pure insanity of what we're experiencing right now? Is that allowed to sort of color your coverage? You know, are you allowed to approach it differently than maybe the New York Times guy who has to keep the straight and narrow straight down? You're just covering this as a you do not. Your opinions do not exist here. Like, are you allowed to do it differently at BuzzFeed? Yeah, um, not necessarily, Jeff. And like, I mean, I think. You know. Part of my response to this question has a lot to do with my family is from the south i'm black my family uh, is the descendants of 
of slaves who helped build this, you know, built this country. And I care, you know, because of that yeah. reason. Um, and to see democratic norms be flouted is not, <laughs> doesn't make me feel great. Um, I think that that's also part of the reason why he won is because, um, People like that stuff. People like, it's like why people like the heel in wrestling. You know, there's something yeah. about like the heel that, that can be compelling to people. Um, but in, in, in terms of the context of my own personal level of concern, I, no, I, I don't like seeing democratic norms sort of just like ignored. Um, uh, and, and, and the idea that like Russia helped influence elect him. I mean, it's, no one can say that that's like a good thing. Right. Um, and, and if you read, if you read that, you know, the Mueller report, you don't walk away from that feeling good about what happened. Um, uh, so I don't think that goes for anybody. Um, but I mean, in terms of like what motivates me, I'm not motivated journalistically by a, a need to take out Donald Trump. I don't know that anyone operates that way. I, I do think that people are, um, really interested in what's happening. And that's why you've seen sort of all these books come out about, you know, Trump and, and the sort of the palace intrigue of what's happening in the White House right now. I'm not disturbed. I've sort of been dealing with this for a, lo a long time, but I don't want to be so removed from the sort of um, what I feel is like a, a, a really weird and crazy thing that's happening. Um, and, and I do feel invested in a way because I feel like the, my family sacrifice and the, the history of our country, you can't ignore it sort of in the context of what's happening. But I just, I don't feel motivated. I hope, I mean, and I hope that answers your question. I, I, I do feel like this is not normal. And so I'm, I'm willing to deal with it on those terms. Right. Judah Peace, um, that ran May 6th, uh, Pete Buttigieg wants the black voters skeptical of him to help shape his campaign. And your lead was Pete Buttigieg knows some black voters are skeptical of how they're supposed to fit in with the suddenly ascendant presidential campaign. As Buttigieg sees it, that's how it should be. It's like our relationship with America. The 37-year-old mayor from South Bend, Indiana, told BuzzFeed News, you have to be certain. You have to believe in a project enough to see where it's going to come up short and care that you're going to fix it. And I guess I need these kind of checks. I need people in my administration whose eyebrows will go up in a meeting when we're all, we're all starting to drift into one policy direction, we hadn't thought about something. And the same should be true of a campaign. It's a pretty long piece about him and sort of this, these issues. Um, I'm always fascinated by this. Like, how did this story come to be? That was a, a conversation that he and I had. Um, I am, uh, friendly with, um, his, his, you know, do everything. I, I think I mentioned in the story, Liz Smith, there was a story on political about, Liz Smith, if you're interested in sort of reading about her, she's a kind of a fascinating um, creature of New York politics. And I think she saw in Pete, you know, lots of talent and, and promise. And so from our relationship, we um, had been talking uh, about him. I, I was reading his book and we were just, you know, texting back and forth about his book and talking about him. And she said, Hey, like, he's going to be in New York. Do you want to kind of make this happen? Of course I did. And he had, uh, lunch with Al Sharpton in, uh, in Harlem, where near where I live. Um, and he, we were supposed to do it in the restaurant. And then they had the daily show that night. I hopped in the car and we drove down, you know, downtown to Manhattan for about 45 minutes, almost an hour. 
and we just chatted and I was in the <laughs> the back seat of this, you know, huge SUV and he was in the front. He like sits in the in the middle seat and like on the left side, like he has to sit there, <laughs> which I thought was kind of an interesting um character wrinkle uh, that that I thought was pretty yeah. fascinating. Um but I mean and then and then like I don't I didn't go into that interview with like any thought about what the story was gonna be. I I mean I obviously he had just met with Al Sharpton and so a lot of my coverage focuses on, you know, African Americans and black politics and so I knew that that was going to be at least some of the part, you know, part of the conversation. But um, he kind of like said this line where he was talking about this idea that, you know, as mayor, he had to, you know, in in terms of consensus building, there was there it was useful for him to have people who were sort of like, you know, skeptical about an idea, whether it's going to happen or not. And for him to sort of broaden that out with this idea of like, you know, politicking and sort of this idea of campaigning that would rely on people who doubted his, um, you know, sort of willingness to, um, you know, have, you know, real outreach and to to really have ideas that were going to move Black American people forward. I just thought it was like, it was kind of a fascinating position for him to have taken. And like he, he's talking a lot about this idea of, of exclusion. And I think that's like part of his background too, is like, he has, you know, a real sense that being gay and sort of coming out really later in his life, um, he knows what that's like and sort of knows what it's like to be not just excluded, but to be sort of considered as other. And I just thought it was like a kind of a really, uh, it was a fascinating conversation that I think hit on some of that stuff, but you know, I, I, I think he's, I think he's interesting and he, I mean, he's certainly interesting to cover. I think he's probably one of the, the more interesting candidates right now. If you, if you're a, a political journalist that you want to be covering. Who do you need to go through to get candidates generally? You know, like with athletes, it used to be you go through the team PR guy and now you go through the agent. Um, if you want to get a one-on-one with Elizabeth Warren, or you want to get a one-on-one with Bernie Sanders or Cory Booker. Has that, is that is it is it always the same for each person? Yeah, you can pretty much almost typically always get to someone either through a press secretary uh, who is like a, a designated position on a campaign or like the comms director. Um, it changes for some of these senators who are running for, you know, who are running for office now. So in, in Washington, you you'd reach out to like the press secretary or the um you know, the comms director, and that's like, you know, a, a standard email or a phone number. Um, and when, you know, once they start campaigning, that entire apparatus usually moves over to the political side. And so, um, that's like who you typically reach out to. A lot of times, I mean, you, when you're on a campaign, it's like you're, let's say you're in New Hampshire or something, you're in New Hampshire, you see the candidate, they will like, you know, after they leave the coffee shop, they'll probably they'll stand there for five or 10 minutes and you can like have access to the candidate that way. But if they're not like out physically campaigning, you usually reach out to one of those folks to grab them. So what I find really fascinating about your job is you're basically covering people who are trying to sell something and they need to stay on message. It's a very I mean, you can see it even from a TV screen. It's a very desperate need. 
stay on message, to hit your talking points, to hit your marks, not to get, not altogether different than covering actors or athletes. And it seems like it's your job in a way to shake them from that, to get them, if not off message, to at least show sort of a human side. That seems really, Absolutely. really, really hard. No? Yeah. Are, are there tricks to it? I guess is what I'm asking. Are there tricks to the trick? Yeah. My trick, my main trick is to, one of them is to just really just have the conversation, right? Like I'm at this point in my career, I've gotten good enough to where I can map out exactly the questions that I want to ask them. Um, and then sort of hide those in a conversation. You know what I mean? So it's not like I'm, I'm, it's like I, I, for instance, talked to Cory Booker the other day. I didn't sit down and say, okay, here's my first question, Mr. You know, Senator Booker. <laughs> um, we, we're talking, we're having a real conversation. We're talking as people. I know what's going on with him. He's trying to win the nomination for president of the United States. That's no different to if you're, you know, let's say you're a sports writer, which I used to be, and I'm talking to, you know, um, Dustin Pedroia. Like, I know he's getting older, so I can, I know he's like not playing a ton. Like, I would be like, Hey man, I, I miss you playing every day or something like that. Or like, okay. you must be, you know, or something that like connects the two of us. Right. So I think we're Dustin and I are actually probably the same age. I, if I were interviewing him right now, I would be talking about, I would be talking about how, what in my life is like the thing that I can't do anymore as much as I wished I could do, you know what I mean? Or, mm -hmm. or like, I, I would just be trying to like identify something that I can like connect with this person with. And that's usually like what I try to do to get someone to kind of open up. I think what you're saying is exactly right. That it's incredibly difficult to like, sort of have like these identifiable markers with people who are running for president who are like extremely bright and some of them who have been like thinking about this for a really, really long time. Um, some of those like commonalities can be a little bit more difficult to come by, but, um, I think you find that once you, um, get them to open up a little bit that you can get more honest answers. And like, you, I mean, you know, with all of these people that like who their friends are and, you know, what their, um, what, what they want. And I think the more that you know about what someone wants, the, the more that you can kind of draw out of them. Um, what's necessary for you to kind of really just do your job well. Let me see this. I, I'm fascinated. With it. Like, so I went to the University of Delaware and if I were interviewing Joe Biden, the first thing I would say to him is, Oh, blue hands, right? If I were an openly gay man who was married, the first thing I would say to Mayor Pete is I would bring that up. Um, you're an African American man in your, I don't know, mid to late thirties. Does that at all give you advantages? Way the wrong word. Like, do you feel like in the same way if I were, I feel like if I were covering Jewish guys in their forties, I feel like I, I would be at a advantage over you in that matzo ball soup, Passover, blah, blah, blah. Hey, remember that time? It's, <laughs> what was your bar mitzvah like? Do you feel like being an African American man allows you to cover your beat in a sort of more informed way than if I were given the assignment? 
Um, I think the, I mean, I think the best thing that I can do is just be competent. I get And I guess that sounds weird, but like, there's something about competence at this level that people in politics and at all sort of levels, um, can, can appreciate. And that's not, that's not, I, again, I, I'll keep going back to sports too, because that's, that's my world. Like there's nothing like when, you know, no one wants to do these things. You know what I mean? Like the, the, if, if there's like some athlete or whatever, and the sports information director at a college is like, Hey, like the guy from the Newark world journal wants to chat for an hour. Like, can you do it? Like, no one is like, Oh yeah, please. Thank you. Thank you. Like, I, I'd love to do that. <laughs> um, right. And so like the, the best thing that you can do when you walk into that room or you guys sit down for coffee is show that you just, you did your homework and you're interested in what is the core sort of thing of their lives that if that's a, if it's a quarterback, like if you can show that you've like studied and you know what you're talking about and you want to be interesting and like engaging, like they're always going to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that it necessarily has to do a ton with me, like being a black man, like, I, I know that means sometimes like if I'm writing a story about race, like I think they will appreciate that I come into that conversation and into that work with like a fair amount of expertise. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know that it necessarily makes it easier for me though, but I, I, I do think what makes any journalist's job easy or easier. And this would be my encouragement to like any young person thinking about this career is to just you're going to have, you're going to have a hard time. Like that's not going to, that's going to be one of the most difficult parts of the job is to actually get people and getting them to talk to you. And obviously you know all about that, but if you can come in competent and um, they have to do this thing all the time, if you can come in, not just competent, but also just like with your own kind of angle and your own sort of freshness into, in terms of your approach, then you're going to be better off. And that's what I kind of try to do. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Dad, I think you need to step up your game with your ads. What do you mean? We need to be more professional. It sounds like some unskilled writer wrote them. Why not sound like a commercial? They sound important. Okay, I'll try. Hey, you. Yeah, you. I know exactly what you need. You need an amazing jersey or shirt from 503 Sports. They have all the throwback merch that your wardrobe craves. If you like high-quality throwback jerseys or aggressively asked questions like this one, then 503-sports.com is perfect for you. Wow, that was amazing. Is it hard when you're covering politics not to get caught up in the trivial bullshit? In terms of what? I think in terms of side stories, in terms of, I don't know, when Kirsten Gillibrand was 17, she once blah, blah, blah. When Cory Booker was at Stanford playing football, he blah, blah, blah. You know, like the might generate, you know, 10,000 retweets, but has very little to actually do with what we are staring at right now. 
So I don't, I don't think that that stuff is necessarily trivial. I, I think I, I like doing these sort of deep dives into people and you bring up Kirsten Gillibrand. I mean, she's someone who I think is, is, is very fascinating. And, you know, there are things about her past that I think inform how she should be covered. And so, I mean, like growing up you, as a girl, that's like she, for instance, like her mom and her grandmother were like extremely like extremely connected in politics. Like in Albany, they were, they're like a, basically a political family. And I just think that they're like, once you know that you can, you go into covering her with a level of, I think, seriousness um, that if you don't sort of look at that trivial stuff that like sort of on the surface trivial that you, um, you don't want necessarily appreciate how she's running and who she is. And I mean, I think about, I think about um, your, your book about Walter Payton in that kind of respect. It's like, you have to understand what going to Jackson state is like, right. Or like, or some or or something like that like knowing what it's like to be like from the south mm-hmm. now, on one respect like yeah it might it may not matter but you can't really understand the person unless you kind of know these kinds of, and maybe like maybe it doesn't go in the story maybe it doesn't go in the book but it should be kind of in the back of your mind in terms of like what is informing you and how and how, you know, what's informing you brings sort of the, the seriousness of purpose to, to the work that you're doing. Yeah. Interesting. I actually, I keep waiting for the first, I have a friend who played football with Corey at, uh, at Stanford and I keep waiting for the first big Corey Booker as a Stanford football player. He said he was not very good. I always remember him. was like, yeah, not a great player, <laughs> but a really nice guy. Yeah. Nice guy, bad player. So there's a, yeah, he, uh, he, he should do it. I mean, he's, uh, he, he's fascinating as well. And like, I, he's talking about football all the time when he's out there talking to people and he even talks in like football analogies and he's always talking about like how moving the ball down the field, (laughs) you know, like, um, it, it, it has sort of like an interesting worldview that I think is, 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 is really shaped by, um, uh, his football career. And really, I think he loves the sport as well. So it's, it's fun. Um, you, uh, you went to Hofstra, the old, uh, yeah, not the Flying Dutchman anymore, right? Not the Flying Dutchman anymore. What are they now? Not the Flying Dutchman. I think it's the Pride. It's just the Hofstra Pride, and the, oh, yeah, Hofstra the, the Pride. mascot Home is like a, a a male and female lion. It's very um, uh, politically correct for the times. Yeah, very nice. Home of uh, Speedy Claxton, Wayne Corbett, Marcus Colson, and you. So it's pretty uh, pretty good company. Joe Flacco um, is one of my memories of of covering um, college football at Hofstra. Cause he would just like carve them up every, like every game. It was like, we, you already knew it was going to happen when, when he got yeah. on the field. Yeah. yeah. I feel good about that. I feel like, um, I feel like I win this battle because Delaware has Flacco, Gannon, Biden, Chris Christie, uh, Steve Schmidt. It's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a modern and you've got Marcus Colston and Wayne Corbett. Um, you went to Hofstra, you graduated in 2006. You before you went to BuzzFeed, you were the sports business editor for Black Enterprise from uh, 2012 to 2014. Why um why did you make the jump to politics? 
I, you know, I don't even know. I, I, I did a story for the New York Times magazine about, you know, Charlie Rangel. It was sort of his last race that he was running and campaigning. Um, and to me, it was just fascinating to see this, like, you know, older, um, guy who was running really kind of, you know, for the, the last hurrah. Um, and he was like running as if he was like a young man. Uh, he was running against this like pastor who, um, is from Harlem, a guy named Mike Warren, uh, who people in New York would know. And it, it was kind of this generational battle against, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, the sort of the lion of the, they, they called him the lion of Harlem, but you know, he was just, just this lawmaker who had like, a couple, you know, a rough and tumble kind of last few years in his career. And it just, it just fascinated me. Um, so I ended up writing that story at like, I think it made the cover or something in the New York Times magazine. And I kind of just never got out of that world. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, you know, be approached by, um, Ben Smith, who's our editor and, um, you know, I just kind of never let it go. I didn't know a lot about politics. Um, you know, before, you know, that story and kind of being immersed in that world was kind of like, you know, baptism by fire or whatever. But it was, I mean, I, there are, there are tons of topics and subjects in, in this field to cover. And it's, it's, it's similar to sports in that, um, you know, there are winners and there are losers and everyone's trying to tell a story about themselves. So, um, and as a journalist, as a reporter, it's something that you, um, just you, you learn to appreciate, um, and it's, you know, I haven't gotten tired of it yet. So, right. I think we need to rewind for a second here. So it's, uh, June 18th, 2014, uh, betrayal on Charlie Rangel's Harlem is the, is a headline. Your lead is St. John's Baptiste church in the Sugar Hill section of Harlem is a modest red brick building discernible from the buildings on its block by two white Corinthian columns and a large illuminated plastic cross hanging from the second story. Back in the civil rights era, the church housed a thriving congregation. Many of them African-Americans who had fled the South. Its roles have since dwindled to about 250, but Harlem is a neighborhood eternally preoccupied with its past. Um, I mean, you said it very nonchalantly. Oh, it might have been the cover. I mean, come on. This must have been a huge, <laughs> huge deal for you. How did you get a story on the cover of the New York Times magazine? That's insane. You know, it's so funny. Um, so <laughs> the editor was like, all right, dude. So your life is about to change. You know that, right? And I was like, what? I, I just couldn't, I was like, what are you, I, I, I you know, it's the kind of thing where someone says something to you. It's like, it's gotta be true, but like, how did, like, how's, how does this work? Um, and like, as it turned out, like, I, as I was talking to Ben Smith, he had read that story, like not, you know, like maybe like a couple of days before that. Um, but, yeah. And that was, that was kind of our first conversation, but yeah, it, I mean, it really was kind of a big deal. You don't think about how that I, I, I don't think enough about how that um, kind of just changed things, uh, you know, in, in terms of the trajectory of my career, but also just like um, in general. Um, and so but how do you get it? I mean, that you were like, you were a young, you know, relatively young writer at black enterprise, no disrespect to black enterprise. You know, I'm, it's not the hugest publication in America. And all of a sudden you have, yeah. here you are, kind of cover of the New York Times magazine. Like, how did that happen? 
oh god um i think that i'd written a feature for grantland i'm trying i'm 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 messing up maybe the the uh sequence of events here but um i'd written a story about this young tennis player francis tfo um and i think it was around that time where i just like i I had all these ideas for long-form features that i wanted to do and i just I was just like, I'm going to do it. Like I'm, I have to, I just have to do it. Um, and so I somehow got in touch with this editor. We had coffee. Um, I was like, I think this story is a good one. It's this young pastor. He is running for office. He's trying to sort of like, you know, unseat Charlie Rangel in his own hometown. Like it's a very like ambitious thing for someone to think about. This is like, you know, AOC before AOC, this is like, you know, um, someone like Ayanna Presley who unseated like a long-term incumbent in Boston. This is happening in Harlem in, in like the summer of 2014, the spring, I guess, of 2014. And I was like, I think we sh- I, I'd love to do this story. And he was like, interested. It was like kind of weird. <laughs> so I did the story and I, I think it turned out okay. It's one of those things that like is, it's about sort of like um, being kind of unrelenting in your ambition and, and in terms of trying to, you know, identify what a good story is. Um, and so it, it worked. I mean, it was, I was extremely, extremely lucky um, that, you know, it worked out that way, um, but it did and, and sort of uh, eternally grateful for, for that opportunity. But it it, it was one of those situations where, the thing becomes your big break um, and you uh, either, you know, you run with it or, and, and you sort of uh, show gratitude and, 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 you know, in the aftermath. Um, but you, you kind of really got to land on a, uh, uh, you know, snake eyes to, for the opportunity. I feel like there's a, you said to me, you know, I think it was on the cover. I feel like there's an 80% chance you're staring at that framed cover right now in your apartment. <laughs> in your- <laughs> It was like, I think it was like, I forget what the, like the cover was, but it was like, I, I remember getting the magazine and um, it's like Betrayal and Charlie Wrangles Harlem. And mm-hmm. I, I'd closed the story a few days before. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, one of those things where you, you kind of run to the uh, newsstand um, when oh, you're yeah. a young cub reporter. Um, so it was, it was a nice moment. For sure. I would still be running. If I had a New York Times magazine cover story right now at 47 years old, I would be, well, first of all, sadly, I'd be trying to think, where do they sell newspapers right now that I can get this? Thing? <laughs> and then I'd be driving there. It's quite a huge, that's a moment. I feel like non-journalists may not, whether it's your first byline in your college newspaper or even your high school newspaper or whatever, that buzz, I don't know, do you still get, you have a story coming out. Uh, BuzzFeed, do you still get the buzz of seeing it come out? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, that, that, it never goes away. Um, and I, I mean, I get the same, it's the same feeling that I got when, I mean, I'm from Boston, when I would read like a big Lee Montville feature or something like Mm -hmm. that. Like, it's just like, it's, uh, it takes your breath away the the some stories and i just never that just never has left me the the, the excitement that i get from like 
knowing that I'm writing a big feature and I really like it. Like, I think it's like, I think it's good. Um, it's, it, it just doesn't leave you. And when you read a, like a good book or a great story or something like that, like, uh, to me that, that there's nothing that compares to that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I agree. It, I, I, I just, the, the opportunity to tell a good story, to read a great story. Um, that I, I, I honestly, I can't believe I get paid to do this. <laughs> like, I, it's, 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 to me, it's, um, kind of unrivaled in, in terms of, um, the things that I'd, I'd want to do with my life. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. Um, let me ask you a final thing. I always wonder. I had Paul Kane from the Washington Post on uh, a while ago, and uh, another Delaware grad, another one over Hofstra, and um, he uh, we <laughs> keep keep throwing dirt on this one. And um, I already I already gave you the victory, Jeff. But yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I'm just doing the dance. I'm just doing the dance. Um, <laughs> um, what if this is this is weird? And you are report like. There's a lot of like, you know, nowadays it's like, you know, we cannot, we, Trump cannot win again. Like he can't win again. If he wins again, blank. If he wins again, blank. We are doomed. This is it. The, the nation is dead. Blah, 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 blah. Um, how much of this all is hyperbole? What I'm, what I'm fascinated is when you are as close to politics as you are and you are following it day to day to day, nitty gritty, nitty gritty. Um, do you, do you feel like you are less alarmed to a certain degree than a guy like me at home on Twitter going, Oh my God. Oh my God. I can't believe this. Oh my God. I can't. We're done. We're done. The democracy's done. This is over. like, do you feel like when you are in it and covering it in a way you have less alarm than the schlub like me? Um, it's a fascinating question. Um, I think I feel both sides of this. And so Typically what I try to do if I'm out and covering, you know, if I'm in Iowa or if I'm in Georgia, I was like covering, I, I covered Stacey Abrams a ton last year during the midterms. Um, and I would always typically try to go out and knock doors with organizers for campaigns who are like the typical people like knocking on your door saying, Hey, I'm so and so. I'm working for Stacey Abrams. Um, we'd love to get your vote. She is pro education. She's pro healthcare. She's this. She's that. Um, you know, would do? You, can I leave this leaflet with you? Um, and typically, you know, the people are, um, you know, okay. I'm voting for her. Yeah, I heard her. I saw her on TV. Blah, whatever. Every once in a while, you get to a door where it's just a guy or a girl and her little babies, and they have no idea what you're talking about. And right. they like, they just, they, they, they're, they're working, they're working two, three jobs. And you hear the story like, yeah, I got to go to work. Um, I got to pick up my kids from school. Yeah, this baby is sick. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I'll never know what you're talking about. I just can't, I can't do this right now. And those are the people who, um, you know, people like politicians have to reach them too. And it's kind of like 
it's kind of a beautiful process to see, you know, people kind of go through just like trying to get through the everyday. Um, and who, who, who like politics is not like a zero sum game for them. And like, I always feel like that the, the Democrats that can reach that person is the Democrat that's going to be successful. Um, and, and that has to do a lot. That has a lot to do with like, just how do you inspire people who, um, don't want to be inspired and like have other things to do? The, the, and the example that I kind of think of also is like with, um, Andrew Gillum, who ran for governor of Florida, came really, really close to winning that race. But one of the things he always said in the campaign trail was um, this idea that, you know, people's lives are worse than Donald Trump. And I've always taken that to heart. Um, And I just think that it's important to remember that um, for as much as we treat politics as kind of a... um, you know, a game and a, a show that brings in ratings and things like that. Like there are people who are struggling and, um, who don't, it's, it would be a luxury for them to, um, to be thinking about politics the way that we do. And they're not necessarily freaking out, but they are having, you know, a really difficult time with their own personal lives. So, um, I think that like, I, I think about this stuff as much as, you know, anyone is, you know, I freak out sometimes. Um, but it's also, I think, useful for me to kind of remember those people who don't have that same connection. Um, and, and the real struggles of their lives are, are deeply personal and them. They don't have anything to do with Donald Trump. That's for sure. So, um, I, I try to keep both perspectives, I think, in mind yeah. at, at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Well, very well said. Um, well, Darren, I, uh, man, I'm thrilled you did this. And, uh, seriously, I can't thank you enough for this. I'm a, I'm a, a huge admirer of your work. And, uh, yeah, thanks yeah, so much for doing same. it. Same, Jeff. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right. I want to thank today's guest, Darren Sands, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Darren on Twitter at Darren Sands and read his work at BuzzFeed. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.